I saw that I was drinking too much, and I was unhappy about that. I had a child that went to treatment, and we went to family week. They ask you at family week not to drink, and so certainly we didn't during the day, and then we would go to dinner at night, but I couldn't wait to get back into my hotel room and have a drink. My son stayed out on the West Coast after he got out of a rehab, and I'd go visit him. We were walking along the beach one day, and we sat on this bench. My son chewed its fingernails down so deep that they would bleed, and I looked over at him, and his hands had healed, and I could feel this calmness about him, and he was talking about God, and I saw his relationship with God, and I thought, I want what he has. I didn't make that change for maybe another year or two, but I saw in him what was possible, and I saw hope, and that's what I wanted. I was not afraid of AA, or he had a um, sober living home, and he said in his, his home, it was zero tolerance. You go to a 12-step program, you have a, a sponsor, And you go to meetings. That's what you do every day. So I knew what was required of me. And time passed until one night, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I was opening the refrigerator door to pour another glass of wine, and I realized, I don't want this glass, but I cannot stop my hand from reaching in and pouring another drink. And in that moment, there was a little bitty window, and God came in, and I thought, I need help. And that was the first time I realized that I wanted help. I knew we had a meeting at our church, so that night I went to a 6 o'clock meeting at our church, to a women's meeting, and I said, I'm Barbara, I'm an alcoholic, and I need help. Now, I didn't know I was alcoholic at that time, but I knew that's what you had to say to get help. So that's what I said, and the women were there to help me. After the meeting, we all went to dinner, and we were sitting there at dinner, and I was looking across at the woman across from me, and it was as if God put a light on her and said, call her. And so the next morning, I called her and asked her to be my sponsor, and she said she would, and I said, okay, what do I do now? And she told me, and from that point on, my life changed. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 35. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests and provide you with a front-row seat to the recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I'm glad that you're here, and I hope that you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. My name is Barbara. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since June 2508, and it is a privilege to be here. I'm just delighted for this opportunity. Tell us about the early years of your life, and what did your family look like, and where were you born? I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. I did not grow up in an alcoholic family. I had a loving, affirming mother and father, older brother, younger sister. They were all just as normal as can be. My mother and my father have always been my heroes. Uh, They were hardworking people and people of faith and tried to teach me how to do things the proper way. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. My father, after the end of World War II, 
or he was in uh, the Army Air Corps during the war, and he and my mother and brother moved to Kansas City, and my sister and I were born there. He was working at the uh, Kansas City Stockyards, and as an aside, my sponsor's great-grandfather was the head of the Kansas City Stockyards, and we feel like they were there at the same time, and they would have known each other, so it's been a fun connection for us. What did your dad, your dad, your dad worked at the Stockyards? Yes, he's, uh, he was in the cattle business and a rancher. We moved to San Antonio, and we've spent, I grew up in San Antonio. He had an office at the San Antonio Stockyards, and then he was had ranching in South Texas, and that's what he did. And he was my hero. I loved everything he did, and I wanted to be with him. And that's all I wanted to do is be with him and be in the country, be with horses, be with livestock. Did he wear a cowboy hat and boots all the time? Oh, absolutely. Every day. I know that there's black cowboy hats and there's white cowboy hats. Did he have a particular color that he went with? And do you change colors throughout this year? Like spring, you wear one color and summer, you wear another? Yes. He would wear a felt hat during the winter and a straw hat during the summer. And he definitely changed when the season was appropriate. Hats were, well, you had to. You were out in the sun all day long. So you had to protect your face. What about your mom? My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she was infinitely kind and loving and affirming. I just loved her. I lost her when I was 18. She died. You keep using the adjective affirming when you talk about your mother, that she was affirming. So she was just very kind to you with her words and her actions and just always loving on you and protecting you, encouraging you? Absolutely. She was a wonderful mother. And, And my father was also extremely affirming and loving and affectionate. You know, I never could get enough affirmations. That's why I worked so hard to make good grades or or do the right thing, uh, because they were very quick to to affirm what you do well. Did you have any horses or animals that you fell in love with? And can you tell us the names of any of them? Did you have any special animals in your life as a young kid? Always. I was was the one that always would bring a dog home, or (laughs) uh, we always had pets, and I always had a horse, and uh, I've had numerous horses over the years, and yes, I bonded with them, and I think that's how we learn who God is, is through our animals, the love that they give us, what they bring into our lives. I just love animals. What about spirituality as a young child? Were you guys going to church or were you having to figure it out on your own? What were you thinking about spirituality as a young person? Uh, We grew up in church. It was just something we did. We went to church and I went to a church that they taught a loving, all loving, all forgiving, all powerful God However, the, the message to me was you had to be perfect to, to receive this. And so I was always working to please God, and, and I was always falling short. It wasn't until sobriety that developed this close relationship with God, and I, and I felt his love and forgiveness. Were you comfortable there in the church setting as a child? Did you enjoy it, or were you uncomfortable every time you went, or were you loving it? What were you thinking when you were rolling into church or driving on the way there? what we did (laughs) it's just it's just what we did and uh we went every sunday and when i was in high school i went sunday sunday night sometimes wednesday night but Mm -hmm. usually when i would go uh sunday night or wednesday night that was because the guy cute guys were there and I, i would go more for that than any faith practice uh but it's just it's what we did and and so as i had children that's what we did it was just a natural thing How'd you do in school? Did you dig it? Did you hate it? How how was school for you? Uh, I was a good student. Um, 
It was very important to me to be a good student. Uh, I'm an introvert, so studying and, and doing well in school, that's just, it, it came natural. Yeah. And um, also, as I said earlier, I, I got praise for that. That was a driving factor. When did you become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? I didn't drink till I got in college. You know, I hear so many people talk about their first drink and how it transformed them. And alcohol was never the magic elixir for me. I started drinking in college because that's what everyone did. And I drank only if I was going out. And, but I always drank to change the way I felt. I wanted to be fun and funny and a, and a good dancer. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it never happened. It never changed me. And uh, so I married a man who was fun, funny, and a great dancer. But that, <laughs> that came much later. But I would drink on the weekends, I would drink to excess, and then the next day I wouldn't think about it. I didn't think about it during the week, it's only if I went out. But I don't think there's ever a time when I didn't want the second drink. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to Texas Tech in Lubbock. Had a good experience. Yeah, that's a great school. Texas Tech Red Raiders. Right. Get your guns up. Um, and so as far as the drinking and stuff, was that centered like around a sorority or just a group of people that you knew in your dorm or, or how did that get going? Oh, usually with fraternity parties. It sounds revolting, but I drank bourbon and Coke and it's our beer. Mm-hmm. And that's all I drank. We were not very sophisticated. That's all, all, that's all we drank through, through college. It sounds like you were drinking like I was drinking uh, at an early age to release your inhibitions, you know, to just allow your true self to come out because I was I was pretty uptight kid in a lot of ways. I didn't look like it. I looked kind of gregarious and fun, but on the inside, I was kind of uh, uptight and a little bit scared about certain situations, but that alcohol really was like a social lubricant for me. And I really, in a lot of ways, drank to release my inhibitions, especially around girls and just people that I thought that were cooler than me, older than me and cooler than me. Did, uh, did alcohol ever work for you in that way? Was it, did it ever lubricate your social anxieties or allow you to just relax and have fun? Well, you're, it, you described exactly how I felt about it. I wanted to loosen up. I was uptight, quiet. It helped a little bit, but not really. But I was always chasing it. I always wanted to change the way I felt. And I think, if I'm honest, I wanted to change. I wanted a personality change. I was not pleased with my personality and who I was and I wanted to be somebody different and I was always chasing that and it but it never happened really but you but your physical craving kicked off and you wanted a second drink or you wanted to drink again the next weekend not really I just drank to excess or or, or drank to change the way I felt but there was no craving about it I, I didn't really think about it any other times that came much later where'd you meet your husband there at Texas Tech or in Dallas, after, after I got out of college, I lived in San Antonio for a while. And actually, in, I have to add this to my story. It was in San Antonio after I got out of college that I met my first drug of choice. And that was a young man there. There, my drinking kicked off. I, I ran with some people that were drinking alcoholically. And actually, th- that was the only time period I can look back where I think drinking was fun, but that went on for a while, and I realized that, you know, that this, this is not a good situation, and, and eventually I moved to Dallas to get away from that. In Dallas, I reverted back to my college drinking. If, if I went out on the weekends, I would drink. I would watch what you were drinking. 
if you drank several drinks, I would do that. If you had a, only a, a drink or two, then that's what I did. I would, I would watch you. But I was aware, th- even in, in the beginning, that I was very watchful of what, other, what you were doing and what you were thinking of me. I wanted to change the way I felt. I wanted to feel the effects of alcohol, but I didn't want you to know that. I was a controlled, uptight drinker. Were you aware of that at the time that you were drinking that alcohol to, you know, affect that social lubricant and that anesthetic, that change, that social anesthetic? Or is that stuff that you realized in hindsight when you kind of look back over your life? I think I knew it uh, because I would look forward to that drink to relax me because I would I would start out with a nervousness and I wanted to stop that nervousness. So I would I would have a drink to relax. Yes. I, I looked for the drink to change me. What if you got around a group of people or a person that was drinking alcoholically? You, you mentioned the term a minute ago that you were in San Antonio and hang out with some, some crowds, uh, and you said a few of them were drinking alcoholically. And you, but you said you modeled and you watched other people. What, what would you do if you ran across an alcoholic that was drinking in an alcoholic manner? Would you, would you match them drink for drink and do that pace as well? I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that? Just just random people or any, anybody? Well, that, that, was, that was the group that I was running with, this fellow who was my first drug of choice, and that's yeah. what we did. We, we drank too much. Yeah. Uh, we drank alcoholically, and I, and I drank right along with them. Yeah. And, but, you know, you cannot continue to do that without there being consequences. And I saw where there was, I was, I saw that, that it was not a good thing. What were some of those consequences that you saw that, in, that you were scared of coming true because of the alcoholic abuse? I had difficulty holding down a job. I'd lost my mother, but my father was extremely displeased. I didn't have any ambition to get jobs and, and to produce. All I wanted to do was have a good time. It was my father who told me that, you know, you can't, cannot continue this. And so I moved to Dallas and got a job and reverted back to my old drinking ways of being more in control than in moderation. Yeah, go back to your college days of just drinking on the weekend. Did you ever have blackouts or any kind of... I never, I've never had a blackout. Never. Okay, yeah, me either. Um, another thing I have in common with you is my parents didn't drink either. I came from a good family, and my mom and dad didn't drink, and I just, you know, I was very shocked when I found out I was an alcoholic. You know, it's like my mom is a nice lady, and my dad's a good guy, and they didn't drink around me. What happened to me? <laughs> but I just turned into an alcoholic. I loved it. Can you talk a little bit about when it maybe occurred to you after you got back here to Dallas that you had a problem with alcohol, and what were your initial thoughts about that? It came very late. You know, I didn't even, when I was living in Dallas and dating, I didn't even keep alcohol at the apartment. And one of my dates came to pick me up, and he said, usually my dates offer me a drink when I pick them up. And I thought, oh, well, good for them, but I don't keep alcohol in the house. And then uh, some time passed, and I started dating the man I was going to marry, and he was in the liquor business. And so he provided my house with with a very nice bar, so he would have plenty available. And I think that's, that's where my regular drinking of every day began. Well, not then, but after we got married, we drank every night, and it became an every night occurrence. Every night at 6 o'clock, we'd have a drink. I'd have a drink or two, and always with dinner, we had iced tea with the kids. And then after the kids were in bed, I would have another drink. And, but I did not think I was alcoholic. I was very aware of my drinking and now I know that 
If you're trying to control your drinking, you've already lost control. I didn't know that back then. See, I said, I know all these things now looking back. I didn't know it was a craving, but every night at six o'clock, I wanted that drink. And if I did not have that drink, I was restless, irritable, discontent, and mean as a snake. But I didn't know those words back then, but that's what it was. So did your life partner, your husband, did you, I know it's hard to speak for other people, but did he ever have any kind of issues with uh, alcohol or maybe overindulging occasionally? Or or was he just regular dude doing regular stuff? I know he was in the liquor industry, but did he ever have any trouble with stuff like that? He drank alcoholically. He was my guidepost. So I thought, as long as I don't drink as much as him, I'm okay. So I was always looking at someone else rather than myself. I'm sure you were smaller than him, though, and weighed less than him. So, um, yeah, I did that, too. I dated, uh, when I was dating, I uh, dated some girls that were heavy into drinking. It was the only kind of girl I could date at the time because I was... uh, drinking alcoholically and partying pretty hard and a normal girl most normal girls won't put up with that but the ones that drink every day will because if you don't call them on their drink and they're not going to say anything about your drinking did your husband ever get in in any kind of recovery over over the deal or he just kind of just wrote it out the whole way he did not uh he died when he was 53 of a heart attack we did not talk about alcohol it was the elephant in the room and it was not discussed I saw toward the end of his life that he was seeing the problems of alcohol in his life. And I, and I saw that he was trying to um, make peace with it, but he died too soon before he ever got into recovery. Yeah, 53 is very young. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Did your children ever suffer anything, um, any kind of negative effects of your, your drinking as a mom and all that? Or, or did they kind of get out of there unscathed? I don't know. I don't. I don't know about that. But <laughs> they haven't. Yeah, you haven't. They haven't told you about it yet. No. <laughs> Certainly, they understand that I'm in recovery now, and they celebrate my birthdays and they make a big deal about oh, my exciting. my birthday. But they've never discussed how it was growing up. A little fearful to ask that question. <laughs> I avoid it. <laughs> She's like, no, not today. Um, did, er- did others ever confront you about your drinking or start to question you and ask you about your behavior? Friends, medical doctors, police officers? Uh, no, I was a controlled drinker. If we went out, I'd have two drinks. And if, if, the, the, if we went out to dinner, if someone in our party ordered a drink with dessert, then I would. But mm-hmm. if they stopped it too, I would stop it too. I was very careful of what I did in public. And when I got home, I would have another one. But in public, I tried to be very careful about what I did. What other techniques did you try to use to control your drinking except for observing and and matching other people's behavior? Did you ever try any other special techniques to control your drinking or limit it? I would try to slow down. I was very aware that I wanted to drink my drink faster than other people did. So I would try to slow it, slow down. And then after I had the second one, is just to be very careful and watch what other people were doing. And But, you know, if we went to a, a wedding reception or a big party, no one can see what you're doing, so I would have more. But, yeah. but I, was, I, I tried to be very careful and not show signs of having too much. Tell me about when you got to the point in your own mind where you thought, oh, my God, I might have a, a drinking problem of a certain size here, whether you call it small, medium, or large, and I'm going to have to do something about that. Can you tell me a little bit about that when you came to a self-realization, if there ever was that point? The closest thing I can say is when my husband died, 
my kids, uh, my, my youngest had just graduated from high school. So after that summer, I had two kids in going to the University of Arizona, and then my oldest daughter was in California working. So I was by myself, and I took over his business, and I was so afraid of cocktail hour. And so what I did, I worked every night until 7, and I would not get home until 7 o'clock. And once I got home, I would say, I passed cocktail hour, and I, pour, I would pour myself a drink, and I would drink until I went to sleep. And I did that every single day. When Al died, my, my drinking went out, went out of control because there was no one there uh, to bump up against. There was no one. My drinking went out of control there, but it was at home. This went on for months, and I never saw it. I'd get up the next morning, and I'd work, and again, I wouldn't get home until 7 o'clock at night, and I'd congratulate myself on bypassing cocktail hour, and I would, I would drink until I went to bed. Yeah, and I imagine you were super sad during that time when your husband passed away and you didn't have a guidepost anymore and you were working hard and coming home and drinking wine every night. There's going to be so many girls and and guys that can relate to your story about coming home and being lonely and sad and working all day and don't know what else to do and they just drink themselves to sleep. And Were you eating? Were you taking care of yourself and eating and stuff? I would eat a bit, but I wasn't particularly hungry. Yeah, so so how did that that period end or or change? You did that for a few months and then what happened? I did it for several months, almost a year. And, and, And as I came out of that, I began to date. And once I started dating, I pulled back and I went back into my old routine of having two two glasses of wine and not having the third unless someone else was or waiting till I got home to have the third. The excessive drinking stopped. Like a year later? Almost a year later, yes. How did you get to the point? Um, did you ever go to a treatment center or a hospital due to drinking? How did you get to a point where you got sober or needed help or asked for help? I saw that I was drinking too much and I was unhappy about that. I had a child that went to treatment and we went to family week they ask you at family week not to drink. And so certainly we didn't during the day, and then we would go to dinner at night. But I couldn't wait to get back into my hotel room and have a drink. My son stayed out on the West Coast after he got out of a rehab, and I'd go visit him. We were walking along the beach one day, and we sat on this bench. My son chewed its fingernails down so deep that they would bleed. And I looked over at him, and his hands had healed. And I could feel this calmness about him and he was talking about God and I saw his relationship with God and I thought I want what he has I didn't make that change for maybe another year or two but I saw in him what was possible and I saw hope and that's what I wanted I was not afraid of AA or he had a um, sober living home and he said in his, his home it was zero tolerance you go to a 12-step program you have a, a sponsor and you go to meetings. That's what you do every day. So I knew what was required of me. And time passed until one night, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I was opening the refrigerator door to pour another glass of wine. And I realized, I don't want this glass, but I cannot stop my hand from reaching in and pouring another drink. And in that moment, there was a little bitty window, and God came in, and I thought, I need help. And that was the first time I I realized that I wanted help. I knew we had a meeting at our church. So that night I went to a 6 o'clock meeting at our church, to a women's meeting. And I said, I'm Barbara. I'm an alcoholic and I need help. 
Now, I didn't know I was alcoholic at that time, but I knew that's what you had to say to get help. So that's what I said, and the women were there to help me. After the meeting, we all went to dinner, and we were sitting there at dinner, and I was looking across at the woman across from me, and it was as if God put a light on her and said, call her. And so the next morning, I called her and asked her to be my sponsor, and she said she would, and I said, okay, what do I do now? And she told me, and from that point on, my life changed. The last three minutes you've been talking is the exact reason I do this podcast. That was solid gold. Side question, I love California. We have a lot of listeners in California. So can you maybe help us out and tell us what beach you were at when you had that moment uh, with your son on the bench? Do you know where you were? Uh, we were in Laguna. Nice. Uh, California has wonderful recovery. And I would get, once I got sober, I would go out and go to different meetings. And I love the meetings in California. They're, oh my goodness, they're on hilltops and they're in parks. And there was one that was by a wharf where the boats pulled up. I just love California meetings. Uh, we were sitting there. It was in, in Laguna Beach. And it was one of those times when God walked in. And I didn't push him out or close the door. I could see. I got sober in California. One of my favorite meetings I've ever been to in my entire life was at, I believe it's called the Canyon Club in Laguna Beach. I went there. I was on vacation and I went there uh, for a noon meeting one day and I walked in and I sat down and it was in the very beginning part of the meeting. There's about 50 people in this room and the chairperson asked, does anybody have any AA birthdays today? And this guy raised his hand in the back of the room and he said, I have one year today and everybody clapped. And then I noticed that there was a girl sitting next to him, a preteen girl, maybe a 14 year old girl sitting next to him. The chairperson walked over to him and gave him a one-year medallion, and everybody clapped. And then this little girl stood up, and she said, hey, I have something I want to say. And everybody got deathly quiet. And she said, hey, y'all don't know me, but my name's Leslie. And I wanted to come here today because I knew that my dad was getting his one-year chip, and I don't know who you guys are, and I've never been to an AA meeting. But I wanted to come here and tell you thank you for giving me my daddy back. And when she said that, tears started streaming down everybody's eyes in the place. The whole place just, I mean, I don't even really know how to put words on the feelings that I had in my chest and my mind and my soul. But that was like 18 years ago, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. I love California recovery, and if you're listening to us in California right now, Sober Shares loves you, and uh, we appreciate you. And Laguna Beach, as you said, has a lot of strong recovery. Southern California has a lot of strong recovery. Northern California does, so I'm a big fan of the Golden State. What did you think about AA when you first arrived? How did your first few meetings go? Was it like you thought it was going to be, or was it scary or good? What did you think when you first got there? Well, after the church meeting, the following night, I went to Preston when we had the long green hall, and so I walked down that long green hall, and I sat down in the smoking section, and Kurt was there, and he said, I think you want to go in the other room. So he, he took me in the other room. And I don't remember anything anyone said, but I, I remember the way you made me feel. And while I was sitting there, this woman down the row sent me a, a, a note, and she said, I know who you are, but I will respect your anonymity. And, <laughs> and this was a child who had two or three years old, had been in my Sunday school class, a beautiful, <laughs> sweet child. And then she was there to give me a hug afterwards. And, um, but I don't, I don't remember anything that was said, but I felt comfortable. I felt good. 
It was like sitting down and letting out a long breath. My sponsor said, go to 90 and 90 and make friends and go to different meetings and go to lunch, go to dinner with them. And that's what I started doing. Well, you're an introvert. How did you pull that off if you're shy and an introvert? How did you do that? That's a tall order. I was comfortable in meetings. But to this day, I try to go early to meetings. But when meetings are over, it's very hard for me to stay and socialize. It's like it's been so moving and personal during the hour that I need to leave and maybe connect <laughs> my, collect myself. So I, I'm not good about staying afterwards. Yeah, a lot of those meetings are like that. They're heavy duty. Yeah, yeah. a lot of us have social anxiety in the program. Maybe a lot of us out of the program have social anxiety. <laughs> We're like, I got to get out of here. That was heavy duty. <laughs> right. Okay, so I want to ask you a question. If you have any advice uh, for any of our female listeners that are kind of where you are right now in your story. We're telling the arc of your life story and where we are right now in the arc of your life story is we're within the first few days, weeks, uh, and months of your early sobriety. Can you give any advice to any females out there that might be thinking that they have a problem with white wine every night or knowing they have a problem and are thinking about coming to AA but scared and don't know what to expect? Is there anything you would want to say to any females that are either just about to come in or just have come into the program? What would you say to those girls? I'd say to be open and to be willing. All it takes, just open up a tiny window for God to come in. And the moment that I knew I needed help, my visual of God is Michelangelo's painting of God reaching his powerful hand down to mankind. And at that moment, I, I felt him reaching down his hand to me, and I grabbed it, and I've held on it to it ever since. That's all he needs is a tiny window and just be open for help because help is there. I was forced into Alcoholics Anonymous through my addiction and pain. And when I got here, I found it beautiful and that the people were nice and willing to help me and they weren't trying to sell me anything and they weren't trying to coerce me to do anything. And, and uh, it was a safe place. It was like a safe harbor for me. And I really leaned into it. What did you think when you saw the word God on the walls at your first few recovery meetings, when you looked up and you saw the word God, and you're like, oh, God and AA, they go together. What's going on here? What were you thinking about the word God? God is my friend, so it was a good thing. Um, I was very comfortable with that. I'm, I'm very grateful that God is an AA. I did not feel that way. <laughs> I did not feel that way. I was like a little bit more horrified. We come at this deal from all different different roads of life experience and perspective. Um, when you read the 12 steps on the wall, did any of them baffle you? Were you like, what is that? Or I mean, what were you thinking when you saw all 12 steps? Because that's a lot to swallow and digest when you first see those things on the wall. My sponsor took me step by step. It was like leading me in baby steps. And we did step one, then we did step two. And it was very methodical, very slow. And so I didn't I didn't think ahead. I just I was just where she kept me, and I did exactly what she told me to do, and that's all I did. So I, I didn't really worry about what came next. That sounds like a very smart and safe way to approach recovery. <laughs> yeah, avail yourself to somebody that you respect. Avail yourself to somebody that has experience and do what they say. That's exactly what I did when I came in. I availed myself of my new sponsor, who was a stranger to me prior to that. I'd never heard of him, never seen him before. His name was Gary P., and he appeared to be smarter than I was, sober longer than I was, and had a, a pretty deep level of knowledge and experience with the Alcoholics Anonymous program. So I just kind of relaxed and gave up and said, I'm in trouble. I'm just going to do what Gary P. said. And Gary P. said, 
go home and read more about alcoholism and there's a solution and meet me here tomorrow night at six o'clock. So I did what Gary P said. I went home and I read more about alcoholism. There's a solution. I went there the next night at six o'clock. The next night he's like, did you do it? I'm like, yeah, I did it. He's like, okay, man, good. Most people don't do it. So good job. He goes, by the way, go home. And tonight I want you to thank God tonight or your higher power, whatever you believe in that you didn't drink today. And then tomorrow morning when you get up, I want you to get on your knees Ask him to keep you sober throughout the day and meet me here tomorrow night at six o'clock. I was like, okay. And so he just baby stepped me, man. He slow sold me. And I just did what he said. And then he started to say things like, okay, now we're getting into the point of the program where you're going to start writing some stuff down. Are you cool with that? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're going to have to start doing some more reading. He wrote, you cool with that? You can read, right? And I was like, yeah, I can read. And uh, he told me what to do. And he led me through the steps and he got me through the fifth step and then. He passed away, but he did get me through through the fifth step. Tell me about the AA sponsor girl that you're working with and how has she been, how has she impacted your life? It sounds like she's meant everything to you or close to it. She's done a lot for you. You can talk about your relationship with her. My sponsor, I love and adore. She's my friend and she's my mentor. I respect her opinions greatly. She's been infinitely kind to me. She's fun. She's just opened up doors for me. I couldn't say enough about her. She's, she's, she's absolutely tremendous. What kind of service work has she encouraged you to get involved with? She was on the jail team and really enjoyed it, so I signed up for that. I went for several months, but I did not enjoy it as much as she did, <laughs> uh, but I tried it. Uh, she's encouraged me to uh, be in, on the board of, of some nonprofits, and I do that. She certainly encouraged me to sponsor the very first year, she invited me to be uh, in this women's group, and which we went through the steps, and that was hugely beneficial to me. And she's encouraged me to try other meetings. Can you tell me a little bit about women's meetings, and if you like them, if you don't like them, and how are they different than co-ed meetings? During the week, I, I like to go to the noon co-ed meeting, and on Monday nights, and uh, sometimes Wednesday nights, I go to women's meeting. Women's meeting, the, the, the dialogue is different. It's more detailed about what's going on or what has gone, gone on in an individual's life. It's absolutely safe. You can say anything. I think there's a, a reticence in co-ed meetings for some of the women to be completely honest with what's going on with themselves. I don't feel that way. I really like the co-ed format. I'm more comfortable in that than I am in a strictly women's meeting. Is there more crying? Uh, there, there is some, not not a lot. It can be emotional. Yes. Okay, I'll t- I'll let you in on a secret that you don't know about. In the men's meetings that we have, that are just meetings, there's a lot more cussing. Oh, <laughs> I don't know how it could be more. Oh, <laughs> well, they do, man. They, it makes me uncomfortable sometimes. But all the oh my goodness, all the men's meetings I go to, they let it fly, and I'm sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know if that was necessary. Darn. But yeah, they do cuss a lot more in those men's meetings. Sobershares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of things you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. My email address is Mike, M-I-K-E, at SoberShares.com. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that can be played back on our next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process will take less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing a basket at a meeting to help keep sober shares open and operating smoothly. 
Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses. I want to mention a few listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. First, I'd like to shout out Liam F. for donating via our PayPal link, and he said, great show, great podcast. Also want to send a big thank you out to Amy Z., who also donated via PayPal. I want to get into a little feedback. This podcast helped me learn so much about alcoholism. I love this show and the host. Please keep them coming. Another review that we received via the Apple Podcast platform, username was BTD. Best podcast ever. I love this show. It helps me in my sober journey and my daily walks. The AA meetings and sober shares are a powerful combination for my sober life. Thank you very much. I want to assure everybody out there listening that I value your time and your attention as a listener. And our sole focus at Sober Shares Podcast is to help people. And that guides everything that we do here. Now, let's get back to our guest. Have you sponsored any other females in the program? And what's that been like for you? I love sponsoring women. And I love these women. I truly believe that God puts you together. I have sponsees that have gone out. Maybe they've chosen another sponsor or they've moved away. But I still feel that that God puts you together. The women I'm sponsoring now, I'm so proud of them. They do an awesome job. They Daily, they try to do it better. And they're always, always putting their sobriety first. They're just terrific women. I like them as friends. I, li- I like being with them. Isn't it exciting when you get one that does what you say? <laughs> you're like, go home and read this, and they do it. You're yes, like, yes. You're like, all right, I like you. Or just to see the change, how, how much they grow and change, and to see the joy that comes back in their life, and, and that they, how they begin to feel good about themselves. Let's talk about hearing fist steps from some of your sponsees. I don't need any particular names, dates, you know, events, stuff like that. But can you tell me a little bit about what it feels like from your perspective as a sponsor hearing um, one of your sponsees' fist steps? What does it do for you? Maybe speak a little bit to the fist step uh, side of you receiving or hearing one. It's a great honor that someone would trust me with those intimate thoughts. You know, I just want to wrap my arms around them and, and say, it's okay. And to assure them that they're loved, they're forgiven and all is well. It's a huge honor. I'm not of the Catholic persuasion or faith, but I think of it a lot like um, the Catholic portion of their belief system where they do confession. That's what it feels like a lot of times to me. I mean, we're rolling through it and we're going through it at a deep level with their sex inventory, their fear inventory, and their resentment inventory. But I feel the same way. It's a, it's a great honor for me to hear these fist steps. You mentioned earlier 90 meetings in 90 days. Do you suggest 90 meetings in 90 days to your new sponsees? And what are your thoughts on that? I think it's imperative. And and I tell them, I don't care how you do it. You go three meetings in one day if, if you're going to be out of town or uh, try different meetings. I, I, I say the exact same thing that my sponsor told me. Do 90 meetings in 90 days and get to know the people. Go, go out to lunch with them. Try different meetings. And just get involved because I think it takes that to change, to make a change in your habit and your and your life. Yeah, I think it's a complete recalibration uh, process because I heard that too a lot in Southern California when I got sober. Oceanside, Carlsbad, uh, Lucadia area, they would say ninety meetings in ninety days, and my first thought was, "Wow, that's a lot." <laughs> what are you talking about? Ninety meetings in ninety days? But then I realized that. 
I didn't really have a lot going on. I was, I was, I really didn't have a lot going on. I was single. I mean, I was working barely, but I just, I had time to do it. And so I, I did it and it got me out of my little rut that I was in, actually rather large rut that I was in as far as, you know, my, my groundhog day style lifestyle that I had when I was drinking. And you mentioned that you would work every night till seven o'clock and come home and, you know, congratulate yourself that you had made it past happy hour. And then you would start drinking at 7 PM and then drink yourself to sleep. Well, guess what? If you're in early sobriety and you're doing 90 meetings in 90 days and you're trying to go to an 8 PM meeting, that means you got to get out of your house and go see your new friends and try to figure out a way to get to that eight o'clock meeting. And it kind of removes that temptation, uh, and gets you out of the area, um, your home, your apartment, wherever you did your drink in your car and puts you in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and really kind of recalibrates you and uh, sets you on the path to sobriety. And you just hear so much stuff. If you do 90 meetings in 90 days, you hear so much stuff downloaded into your brain that'll hopefully move you towards sobriety. This is a big question coming up. Has the desire to drink or use drugs, and we haven't talked about drugs yet. I don't know if you were into drugs or I don't know what your story was with drugs, but has the desire to drink or use drugs again returned since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? Uh, drugs were not a part of my story. Um, actually, I, I, I grew up in the 50s. And um, I think I pretty much, you know, I graduated from college and right as drugs were coming in. So I really wasn't ever exposed to them. So that was, that was never a part of my story. The desire to drink has not returned. What has returned, uh, there were a couple of... Um, stressful times where I wanted to change the way I felt. And, um, and when that happened, um, it, it just came on me. And um, so I just, I went outside and, and had a run or, or if those things, if I'd feel that it's almost, it's, you know, it's physical, it just comes in you that you want to change the way you feel quickly because of the anxiety and the fear is so great about what might come to pass um, but instead of using alcohol uh, I would run or I'd go work out or do anything just to get exhausted and, and to go past that but I've, I've never really wanted to take a drink but that desire to change the way I felt that that has come and I've just used other ways to combat it I appreciate you sharing those tools of getting outside and taking a run or calling your sponsor going to a meeting praying meditating has depression or anxiety ever uh, entered your life since you've been sober? And how have you coped with depression or anxiety since you've been sober? I know you said go for a walk or a run, but anything else? Uh, I've never had a, I don't have a problem, didn't have a problem with depression, anxiety in the form of everyday living. There's always, there are things, you know, with children and grandchildren and a business and uh, just regular level anxiety and fear, but nothing significant. Where are you at with God today? You know, for my whole life, I wanted a relationship with God. And they would, I always heard people say to have a personal relationship with God. And I knew that was the goal, but I did, I did not understand it. I didn't know how to get it. But I have that today. My, my, relation, my concept of God and faith, it, it was so intellectual that I could never get us together. I, I felt God was far above and I was where I am, and I couldn't make the connection. But now, it's a visceral, very physical feeling that 
God is with me at all times. I feel God now on a cellular level that I didn't before. That's beautiful. I, you used the word at peace with it, and I, I want to echo that. But if I was answering the same question, I would say I feel safe all the time now. It's crazy. Like, I feel safe all the time now, no matter what's going on, whether something's going on financially, whether something's going on physically, whether something's going on relationship-wise with my wife, whether something's going on with the dog or the school or the kid or politics. It doesn't matter. It's crazy. I feel safe like super safe a lot. And I know that it's grounded in my faith. And that is something I've never had before. And the way I found it, and I got in touch with that, was through the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I found God here. That's where I found God. God got me to AA, and then I found God within the context of Alcoholics Anonymous. My own definition of God, I'm not going to preach to you and tell you XYZ, and you should believe XYZ. You believe whatever you want to believe, but the God that I found, I found within the context of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I want to turn our attention to next, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I'd like to ask you, Barbara, is if you can select and talk about any one of the 12 steps that you would like to highlight and discuss. I'm going to give you a second to give your thoughts together and figure out which one of these 12 you want to talk about by reading these out loud in order to the, to the listeners so they can hear what they all sound like. These are the 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Can you pick one of those that you want to highlight or discuss? I'll have to choose four and five. Perfect. When I wrote my inventory... I spent a great deal of time on it, and I've never understood why some people are afraid of this. Because <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> but what better way to spend your time than talking about yourself? Right. So it was, I just spent a great deal of time, and I wrote everything I could think of. In this process, when I saw on paper who I was and that I was not who I wanted to be, I was not who I thought I should be, but it was who I was. And at that time, I felt God's forgiveness and acceptance. And there was a huge shift. And it didn't, I didn't have to tell another human being to make it go any further. It was that time of presenting it to God and for me to acknowledge who I am. And it was like he was saying, it's okay. And it changed everything. I felt loved. And from then on... Yeah, I just flowed through them because I knew God was with me and there's nothing that would ever change that. 
That is a beautiful answer. I've never heard anybody verbalize it that way. I had the same exact experience as I read my fifth step to a preacher at uh, St. Michael's Church in Carlsbad, California, off of Tamarack Avenue in the Five. I uh, was very, I don't know, man, ego deflation, ego deflation. I just sat there and I read that guy my fourth step. He listened to it as the receiver of my fifth step. I cried. I'm going to echo what you said. I saw who I was, and it's not who I thought I was, and it was far from perfect, and I was far from who I wanted to be, but I saw that God loved me anyway, and that I had a chance, if I stayed sober within the context and confines of the 12 steps of alcoholic stomach, that I could aspire to be who I'm supposed to be, and it might not be who I thought I was going to be when I was a child or when I was drinking every day. I used to have a lot of false fantasies of who I was where I was going to end up, how many people were going to be working for me. I just had a lot of crazy drunk fantasies in my mind. During that fist step, I got some clarity from that preacher. And he asked me during the fear section, you know, the resentments and the fears and the sexual inventory, he asked me a lot of, you know, pointed questions. And he's like, Mike, what are you going to do if you never attain some of those crazy self-imposed goals that you have floating around in your head that you're holding yourself up to a realistic standards? What are you going to do if those don't come true? Are you going to be able to be okay and comfortable in your own skin if those don't come true? Will being sober be enough for you? He asked me that. I sat there. I thought I did not answer quickly. I was silent. And I wept for a little bit. And I said, yeah, man, I reached into my heart and my soul. And I just reached into God. And I said, yeah, I guess I guess I will have to learn how to be okay with, with that. I'll just have to learn how to accept it and be okay with who I am. I want to turn our attention to the 11th step, and I want to talk about the 11th step with you. I want to ask you about any particular styles or forms of meditation or prayer that you're using. So I want to read the 11th step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So can you talk to us a little bit about any particular styles or forms of meditation or prayer you're using? I love that step, and I do it exactly as my sponsor told me. In the very beginning, she said, memorize the third and seventh step. Say it every morning. Ask him to keep you sober, and before you go to bed at night, you thank him for keeping you sober for that day. So that, that's what I do. Um, I know to, uh, upon awakening, to say my prayers, and that's what I did for years, but it's only within the last few years that I started praying on my knees. And that's due to my sponsor's influence, because she said she prays on her knees morning and night. I thought, okay, maybe this is what I better be doing. And I just started doing that a few years ago, and it changed everything. I get on my knees first thing in the morning, and I say the third and the uh, seven-step prayer. I ask him to direct my thinking. May it be divorced of self-pity dishonest and self-seeking motives and at night what I found find interesting is when I get on my knees at night the first thought that comes to me is thank you thank you thank you and it's it's not contrived it's not planned but as soon as I'm on my knees at night that's what comes out and and I start listing all the things I am so very thankful for and so praying on your knees is different and it's, it's like writing on a piece of, writing your thoughts longhand on paper. There is some connection between God and your heart and your hand. And I think there's a definite connection when you're on your knees between God and your heart 
and your thoughts that come out. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I finally did what she asked me to do because it's been very revealing and, and, uh, extre- and I just, I love it. What does that look like in real life? I mean, do you physically do it like right next to your bed? Like do you physically roll out of bed and hit your knees or do you walk in the bathroom? I mean, what do you do? What does it look like? Uh, well, well, if I can, I will, when I wake up and I'm aware that I'm awake, I, I will get beside my bed and, and start saying my prayers. You know, there's some, some mornings you have to go to the bathroom first and come back. Yeah. And, uh, but, I, but I like to open up my hands and offer myself as an offering to God and, and to say the prayers. And at night, before I go to bed, um, I, I get on the side of my bed and, again, open up my, my hands and, and offer myself to God and thank Him for keeping me sober that day. But like I said, the first thoughts, I mean, I don't plan it. It just comes out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I thank Him for blessing me so abundantly. And He's always blessed me. And I was aware of it, but I wasn't aware of it on this deep spiritual level that now I am I, I'm aware of how he's blessed me that's beautiful do you have any books that you go to all the time do you have like readings and stuff or is it mostly just memor- memorized prayers um I, I just do the the third and seventh step prayer and um and if then I just sometimes I just talk to God and tell him and list all the people that in my life that I've thanked him that for for coming into my life and I see life is intentional I see God places particular people in my life and that he's done this all along, that he's directed me to go here or there. And it was very intentional of who I married, the the father of my children. That's very intentional. Now I can look back and see why he did that and that he did it. I can see him leading me into sobriety and people that he brings into my life now. I see all of that is intentional and I'm extremely grateful for it. What has been your toughest challenge in sobriety and how have the 12 steps helped you with that challenge? I think practicing the principles in all of my affairs, it requires me to live under God's principles rather than man's. Practicing these principles in all of my affairs means that I cannot say ugly word I want to. I cannot be the selfish person I want to be. I cannot be resentful. It's asking me to be better, and that gives me pause. I've thought about that in, in, in different situations where I wanted to be petty and mean and hateful, but I cannot do that because recovery asks me not to do that, that I must practice these principles in all of my affairs if I want to do this right. I agree. My sponsor talks to me all the time about the longer that he's sober, and he's basically telling me the same thing when he says this. He's like, Mike, you know, the longer that you're sober, the more you have to do in the program. And I was like, okay, the longer I'm sober, the more I got to do, not the less. And I was like, okay, I got it. And then he starts talking about, and I've heard other people, not just him, speak about this, but as you walk down the path of sobriety and recovery, the path that you're on narrows it narrows. And what I mean by it narrows is what's acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior. So what I mean by that, let me give you a real life example. You might be doing some stuff, whatever you want to call it, but behavior in a particular area of your life in years four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. 
what you find acceptable at that point to do those types of things and those types of scenarios, life situations. But then as you stay sober and you get into years 12, 13, 14, and 15, the road narrows on what's acceptable behavior and you have to lean a little bit more into sobriety and lean a little bit more into recovery. You have to kind of take a look and just keep unpeeling, discovering new new information about yourself and discarding old thoughts, old ideas, and old ways of doing things that no longer serve you or the community around you. And that's what he means by that the road narrows as you walk down this path of sobriety. Because I was doing tons of stuff in my first 10 years of sobriety that are no longer acceptable behavior for myself now at 21 years. So that's been my experience. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you feel like going to recovery meetings is important? I love going to meetings. Um, The minute I walk into a meeting, I feel different. I feel God's presence. I look forward to going to meetings. There are people that... I look forward to seeing and hugging every single day. Um, they may it just makes my life better. You know, I, I listen more at a meeting than I do anywhere else. I really want to hear what people say, and I think God speaks through them because I hear so much that helps me when I go to meetings. I always benefit. Yeah, it recalibrates my thoughts on who I am, who the world is, and how I fit into it when I go to a meeting because I hear other people and their situations and what they're going through. And a lot of times my thoughts uh, appear petty and pale in comparison to a lot of these other members and what they're going through. And I'm like, okay, I guess I need to calm down a little bit over here. (laughs) I'm worried about gas prices and my transmission feels like it might be slipping a little bit. But this guy next to me has real problems, like real problems. So I need to maybe calm down a little bit and kind of recalibrate my thoughts about, you know, what's going on with me and maybe reach out and try to help my fellow brother or sister. Can you give me an example of one of the promises coming true in your life? They're listed right there in front of you. you got a whole list of the promises. Can you talk about one of those that comes true in your life? I now understand peace and serenity. I, I never knew how valuable that is. I love the peace that comes with working the program, primarily that God is doing for me what I could not do for myself. I thought I had to, I thought it was my responsibility to change me and do this and do that. It, it's not, it's God who does it, and God has the power, and I do not. And I am so grateful that God has given me this opportunity for a new life. It's just changed dramatically. What about church? As you lean back into your, the church of your childhood, or have you picked a new church, or are you just not? going to church as much right now and you're just doing the spiritual thing what's going on with that when i moved to dallas i uh, i grew up in a, um, a church i guess you might call it a fundamentalist church and uh when i moved after college and i moved to dallas i joined the methodist church and and the methodists say that uh, they don't have all the answers and i like that i was very drawn to that so i love my church i've been very active in my church raised my kids in it and normally on sundays i'll i'll go to uh, church service and then i'll go to the 11 o'clock aa meeting i love them both i need them both and i get something different out of both and recently i was sitting in church and i was wondering what do i feel that's so different in church from aa and I finally realized church is where I go worship God, and then AA is, is more about me. It's not about me going to church, but AA is more about me and how I can live my life better. 
That's beautiful. I've got a few guys that I am familiar with and work with, and they talk about that it's a balance. They 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 love and realize they need church, and they love and realize they need Alcoholics Anonymous. They also realize that they're in a lot of ways two distinct entities, and they need to continue to lean into both of them to have a balanced and healthy recovery. And I find it beautiful. I think it's a beautiful thing. Let's turn our attention to the literature, either the twelve and twelve or the, or the big book. Do you have anything that you would like to point out to us in the literature that sticks out to you that you want to read or point out and educate us a little bit about? I love on page 60 that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. I just, I love that because it relieves me of all responsibility of trying to change another human being. I have no power to change another human being. I had no power to change me. And it was only through asking for God's help that things changed for me. And I love on page 55, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or another, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are, old as, are facts as old as man himself. And I I just love that. And I also love on page 80. We ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. There's so much in the big book that I love. Have you ever been to any AA conferences, and what did you think about them? I've only been to one. I went to the Girl of Palooza. My sponsor and I went, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It it was great fun. They had meetings all day long and meetings at night. There's another conference I want to make people aware of, and it's the 59th International Women's AA Conference, and it's going to be February 16th, 17th, and 18th, and 19th of 2023 in Dallas, Texas. So y'all come down here. And enjoy it and join us for the 59th International Women's AA Conference, February 16th through 19th of 2023. These are the rewards of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. These were presented at the 1985 International AA Convention by an AA member named Ann C. So these were read at the conference, big conference in 1985. These are the rewards of staying sober. There's 12 of them. One, hope instead of desperation. Two, faith instead of despair. Three, courage instead of fear. Four, peace of mind instead of confusion. Five, self-respect instead of self-contempt. Six, self-confidence instead of hopelessness. Seven, the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. Eight, a clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt. Nine, real friendships instead of loneliness. 10, a clean pattern of living instead of a hopeless state of existence. 11, the love and understanding of our families instead of their doubts and fears. 12, the freedom of a happy life instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to wrap us up with here today, Barbara? What are you thinking? To be open, to be willing, All God needs is a tiny window, and if you let him in, he can work miracles in your life. I really appreciate you. Thank you. See you on the next episode.